Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. This book has profoundly changed my life. Its, it's words are words that, according to Scripture, go deep down inside of us, shows us the true issues of our hearts, shows you what's true about those issues, and tugs at us to come and to trust God and to go with Him. As Paul wrote to Timothy, he says, all scriptures given by inspiration of God. And it's all profitable for doctrine, for the things that we would believe, for reproof, for showing us those areas of our lives where, you know, we aren't getting it right. And and then for correction, showing us, well, here's how you make the change. And then then to show us, it, it says, instruction in righteousness. So how do we now live this out? And it says the end result is that we become complete spiritually able to do anything that God would call us to do. Uh, His word is eternal. It is settled in the heavens. When we meditate on his word, we have the promise that that he will prosper us in the things he leads us into. Uh, I just think of, of all the times that I have, you know, been in the word, sometimes very purposeful, sometimes just casually, but how the person I am today, I would never have been that person apart from this. And there's still plenty to go. I got a long ways to go yet. There's enough mess left around to work on, right? But this book, and I remember when I first started, I grew up in a church where this book was there, but it wasn't really believed as the word of God. You know, you used to, you know, I was in a church that the, the message and the, the mission was much more about uh, and love, okay, but love is important. How important is love? <laughs> Hugely important, but about love and, and social justice and, and that kind of thing. And, and this idea that the Bible is the word of God was lacking. It wasn't there. In my senior year of high school, I began attending a church where they do believe the Bible. They do believe it is what it says it is, uh, and they used it in a manner consistent with it. They preached it, they taught it, and, and so I'm so grateful that when I came to Christ that it was in a context where the Word of God was given the role that it should have in our lives. And by the way, the Word of God will change your life in good ways in awesome ways, in challenging ways sometimes. Now, when I first started attending this church and hearing, you know, how they were preaching here about Jesus, I, I hadn't come to Christ yet. I was a senior in high school, and I'm, busy, I'm going. Maybe sometime in that first year and a half, I don't remember, but I remember having a conversation with my mother specifically. I don't remember if my dad was there or not. But my parents were not real happy that I was attending that fundamentalist church. Now, fundamentalism has all sorts of different meanings to people today. Uh, But let me explain. If we're talking about fundamentalism as, you know, an attitude, 
We're, we're not talking about that. If we talk about fundamentalism as a political position or anything, kind of, we're not talking about that. Fundamentalism at its root means that it's about Christians who believe the fundamentals of the faith. Well, I believe the fundamentals of the faith, right? That there's a God in heaven who created all things, who sent his son Jesus, who lived and died and rose again, that we might be saved, and that the Bible is his word. Those are the fundamental things, okay? But so, nonetheless, there was this mindset. Let me ask, how many of you, before you came to Christ, thought about churches like ours as those crazy fundamentalists? Anybody? Yeah, a couple, all right. All right. So, um, but as I was hearing this, okay, and so I had this conversation with my, my mom, and I hadn't received Christ yet, I hadn't come to that point yet, and she said to me, she says, well, you know, that church, they probably don't believe in evolution. I was like, what? That would seem crazy to me, Right? I mean, I grew up, I learned evolution, I knew all about it, I knew the science, and, and now you're telling me that these people that, I mean, I thought that if you didn't believe in evolution, it's because you were probably stupid. Okay? And yet these people that I was interacting with didn't seem stupid at all, and now my mom's telling me that they probably don't believe in evolution, so... I thought maybe this is a deal breaker, so I had a conversation with one of the deacons in the church, and I was talking to him about this, I said, so... You guys, you believe in evolution, right? Well, actually, we believe what the Bible says about it. And, and, and we, I was you know, kind of taken back. And we had this sort of a conversation about it. And he was explaining to me some very good practical things, uh, good knowledge, information things. Hey, there's good reasons to believe otherwise. And all, but he wasn't intent on trying to persuade me at that moment. And I think God and the Holy Spirit and his wisdom led this man to say to me, he said, you know what? He says, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about that right now. That'll find its own level. You'll figure that out. Don't let it keep you from pursuing a relationship with Jesus. Oh, what wonderful thing he said to me. Because I thought, well, okay, I can do that. I can kind of, you know, I'll keep going here and, and, and let that be for a little while. And... and uh, I eventually received Christ as Savior. And having received Christ as Savior over time, working through different things, learning different things, I became one of those crazy people who didn't believe in evolution. Now, just based on where we are in a culture and what's going on, there's a, a good possibility that there's some of you here today who say, well, I don't know about that either. I don't know if I... You know, if I buy that whole thing, I think evolution's probably true. And I'm not just after evolution. It's about a whole approach to thinking and life and a view of the world. But you say, I'm not there yet. And let me say to you, don't sweat that. Lean into Jesus. Let's, let's learn about him. Let's figure this out. What's the relationship with God? And he can bring you the peace. Now, here's the thing. I, I do want to tell you that if you come to the point where you say, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Lord. I am going to humble myself before him, you know, turn away from my sins, turn to him, receive Jesus as my Savior, receive his forgiveness. Well, what's going to happen? He's going to forgive you every sin, right? You're going to have eternal life. But what else is he going to do? He's also going to move into your life, isn't he? He's going to move in and he's going to begin working on you and changing you. And I just got to warn you that there's a high likelihood that you're going to change your opinion about some of those things like evolution. Okay? 
But you do not have to believe that God literally, the, the, the book of Genesis, all that is literal in order to get saved. Okay? Now, don't hear me saying something I'm not saying. I absolutely believe it's literal history. I think there's good reason to. We're going to talk about that today. But I just don't want you to say, oh no, and walk out. Stop watching. Because you don't have to believe in the literalness of that first part of Genesis in order to receive Jesus as Savior. Okay, you don't. I want to be real clear about that. So, what is it? We think about the book of Genesis. Why would people not take it literally? Well, it's a six, the Bible acts like there's six literal days in which God created all that is created. Uh, we see a story about supposedly the first two people, Adam and Eve, having a conversation with a snake. Then Satan apparently and the snake having a conversation, choosing to disobey God. And, and then we have uh, the long lifespans. People living 800 years, 900 years before the flood. Then we have the flood. Noah and a worldwide flood. Uh, then we have the Tower of Babel and where supposedly all of the languages of the world came from. Okay, so all of those things. That, so these are reasons that, you know, that, that start to make people say, well, I don't know. So go ahead and go to the title slide there if you would. In the beginning, literally, is, that, is it literal? Should we take it literally? Is there a reason for us not to? So let's just think about this. We, we have that list of kinds of things that are in Genesis. And so why would then people just question that it isn't just literal history the way it writes, okay? Why? Well, there's several reasons. I just will look at four real quick. One is that science, there's scientific, scientific evidence that is interpreted in ways that contradict a little interpretation of the book, okay? Now, notice what I said, it's scientific, scientific, there we go. Scientific evidence, here's the key word, is interpreted. Do you understand that everybody has the same evidence? People who believe in random chance evolution have exactly the same evidence as people who believe that God, in the beginning God created. We all have the same evidence. Somebody has to interpret that evidence, and we typically bring our presuppositions and worldviews to those interpretations, okay? And um, the reality is this, that the science is not nearly as settled as many scientists would have you think. Okay, that's the truth. There's a lot of things, and by the way, being a Christian who believes the Bible does not mean you are anti-science. No, science is science. We get to study this creation that God gave us. In fact, he told us to what? We saw it. Exercise dominion over creation. How do we do that? We use science to learn about creation and how to use it and to control it and shape it. The whole, no matter how you feel about the vaccines, the idea of being able to create a vaccine to work against something that kills people, that is science. And that is Exercising dominion over creation, see? So science is not about that. It's, it's about what's really true. And so I just want you to understand that just because if you see a headline or read some that scientists say, what does that mean? That means some scientists say. 
Maybe a lot of scientists say. There are plenty of scientists, and I could, uh, this, uh, this isn't what the sermon's about, so I gotta keep moving. There are plenty of uh, scientists out there who do have a different view, okay? And I would be glad to help you with that, point you to those things. But anyway, so people say, well, that's not, you know, it's like me when I said, well, evolution, of course, evolution. Okay, that's one of the reasons that people say, I don't think that can be literal, okay? A second reason is because some of the events described don't fit within the laws of nature, okay? You read in Genesis, and it's, wow, that is, it seems like it would contradict the laws of nature, and we'll talk more about that in a little bit. Uh, a third reason is because it includes things that are different from what we ourselves have experienced. Any of you known anybody who was 900 years old? Any, ever, anybody ever known anyone who seemed like they were 900 years old? Right. No, we haven't seen it, okay? But here's the thing. If, if I say the only things are true are things that I have experienced, is that logical? That's not logical at all, is it? If my experience is the only determiner of truth, we're, you know, we're really limited, okay? And so the fact that I haven't experienced it does not mean that it isn't true or can't be true. And here, I think, really is the bigger thing. Do you remember last week we, we talked about and saw that why do people struggle to believe in God? Is it intellectual or is it heart? Ultimately, it's a heart issue, right? And the heart issue then governs how we think about things. Well, it's the same here, okay? Because if you accept a literal approach to the book of Genesis, it's going to require that you be countercultural and you will put your reputation at risk. You will. Okay? You believe what? All right. And so that causes people to step back. I don't know if I want to go there. Okay? Uh, but once again, that is not a determiner of what's true. And really, a number of weeks back, we looked at a passage of scripture in 2 Thessalonians, and it talked about the people who were lost and who were going to be lost did not receive a love of the truth. They didn't have a love of the truth. We need to love the truth, don't we? We need to love the truth, and, and what's true is true. And we need to be willing to go with the truth, regardless of where it leads us. And so even if that puts us in a, in a bind socially in our culture. All right, so... Those are the kind of reasons, and I, I want to talk to you about why, why, what God helped me to understand that helped me to arrive at a different conclusion about the book of Genesis, specifically the first 11 chapters. It's the first 11 chapters of Genesis that are typically the most questioned when it comes to these things. Well, how would we know? How would we know, say, is this supposed to be taken literally or not? Well, there was a, a class I took in school, actually it was two semesters, and it's called hermeneutics. That's a cool name, right? Herman who? <laughs> hermeneutics. And it has to deal with this idea, how do we figure out what the Bible means? And so it's the principles that we use in interpretation, interpreting the Bible, and the methods that we use in interpreting the Bible. And there are different approaches to this in Christendom, okay? There is an allegorical approach. An allegorical approach, and I've heard, man, people, Christians and preaching things, that what they're saying is that the point of this is not what it says is going on. The point of it is this bigger symbolic kind of a meaning. So you don't have to worry. And really, this, this allegorical approach says you don't have to even worry if this is true or not. It doesn't matter. 
Doesn't matter if it's true because here's the big message that we're supposed to be getting from it, okay? So it's sort of spiritualizing it. And then there's a school that's the mystical school, and this is where God told me, all right? And has God told us things? Has he? Yes, they're here, aren't they? And they will always be considered. But the idea is it's a very mystical approach of God has revealed to me what this means. Always be cautious. If, if anybody ever says to you, well, God has shown me what this means, okay, that's great. Now, explain to me. Help me see it in light of the rest of Scripture. Is it consistent with what God said? Because God will never tell you anything that contradicts his word. Okay? He doesn't do that. So you can know that. And then there's the uh, authoritative, hierarchical, and I should have put a slash there instead of a comma, dogmatic. And this is where you have organized religion where the higher-ups tell you what the Bible means. Okay? All right, there's an official interpretation. This is what it means. Now, none of those are, are the approach that we take. Okay? We take a, an approach that is called the literal, historical, grammatical approach to interpreting Scripture. What does this mean? Well, first it's the idea of, when it says literal, it's the idea is we take, I'll talk more about this, but our starting point is that what they said was what they meant. If I'm having a conversation with you and you tell me certain things and you tell me stories about what's gone on in your life, and what you, do you want me to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I don't think he really means that. This is symbolic of something else. No, that's not normal, right? We, normally, we, we hear, we listen. So the idea we start with a, a literal understanding. Uh, it's also historical. In other words, that uh, what was written, God led the people to write the things that they wrote uh, in a certain time and place, in a certain context of events, history, and what was going on. And all of that is important for us to learn to understand what it means. And then grammatical. And this is, you know, a lot of you... <laughs> How many of you love grammar in school? Oh yeah, a few of us. Not most of us. But the grammatical, there are just rules of language, right? How does that apply? What, is this a verb? Is it a noun? Is, it, is this symbolic language? Is it a simile? Is it a metaphor? Whatever, right? So all of those things come into play. And so we're going to go to the scripture and say, what does it mean? When the guy wrote it, what was he trying to say? And so if I want to summarize this approach, we would say this, that the Bible should be understood using normal rules of language, which includes the use of symbols and figures of speech. Okay, by, so sometimes people talk about, you believe the Bible literally, and they think that means you believe everything literally, even figures of speech. Well, we don't, right? Okay, so let's talk about this a little more. So how do we apply these this rules then to the scripture to figure out. Should this be taken literally? It's like it's a literal account or is it something that is symbolic in nature? Okay, so we view a passage as literal. That's where we start. Unless, unless a few things. First one is this, that there are reasons in the text itself that indicate that language is being used symbolically. In other words, sometimes the Bible uses known figures of speech that were used at the time. Well, obviously, figure of speech is a what? A figure of speech. It's not intended to be taken literally, although it's communicating a literal truth. Uh, so those things are in the Bible. Uh, sometimes it's poetry. And poetry, you know, I mean, just the very nature. This is why some people love poetry and some people don't like poetry. 
but how it talks, right? You can wait a minute, that's not supposed to be taken literally. It's communicating something. So there is a time and place for that. Prophetic vision. Sometimes the prophet is envisioning things, that God is showing him things that he maybe doesn't fully understand, but he's recording it, right? What he's seeing and all that. And that, that, those may not be intended to be taken literally. But the vast majority of the scripture is probably taken at face value for what it says and what it means. But if there are reasons in the text. Second thing, logic and common sense point to a symbolic understanding. Okay? Um, this is where you just look at the, the, the words and say, wait a minute. Logic, common sense. So here's the deal. If, it's, if I say to you, man, you know, a week ago, Friday, we were out and, and it was raining cats and dogs. Or if it started raining days, it was raining cats and dogs. Would you expect to go out and find carcasses of cats and dogs on the parking lot? You wouldn't, right? So you would naturally say what? Wait a minute, this is obviously not intended to be taken literal. So some things are very clear like that, okay? Uh, and then um, a literal understanding would contradict other clear scriptures. Yeah, this is very important. Uh, because sometimes you look at a passage and you say, well, it seems like it could mean this or it could mean this. But if it means this, it contradicts this. Well, then that means it doesn't mean this. It must mean that. Okay? So that is part of it. And this is one of the things like when Jesus in John chapter 6 says to the disciples, unless you eat my blood and, or drink my blood and eat my flesh, there's no life in you. Well, wait a minute. Jesus just told people they had to be cannibals. And the law of God says what? No. Okay? So obviously that's a misunderstanding. He obviously must be speaking spiritually. Okay? Because of those reasons. And then finally, this last one's a little harder, uh, harder for me to, uh, to describe it. But let's see if we can't get a hold of it here. A literal understanding, we, we, excuse me, we view a passage as literal unless a literal understanding contradicts the laws of nature when that contradiction is not the point of the passage. So if the Bible is recording a miracle of God, right, some supernatural event, it's going to do what? Contradict the laws of nature. But that's the point of the passage. It's telling us that that's what God did. But if you're reading a passage and that's, it's not about a miracle that God did, it's this, and you're saying, well, wait, this seems to be contradictory. Well, maybe it's because you're supposed to understand it symbolically. All right, I know I've, I've been, had my professor hat on here, right? And I, it's probably going to be on for just a little bit longer. Hang in there with me. But you get the idea? In other words, there are reasons to think that passages of Scripture are symbolic or, you know, figurative. Our question is, is when we go to the book of Genesis, Genesis 1, the creation of the world, Genesis 2, the specifics regarding the creation of man and God's intent for his uh, marriage relationship. And, and then chapter 3, sin entering into the world. Chapter 4, genealogies. Chapter 5, genealogies. Chapter 6, the Noah and the flood. I mean, all these things, all right? We want to say, so if we, we start off with literal and less, well, let's, let's look and see what Apply some tests of hermeneutics to these passages of Scripture. Okay. So some reasons to accept a literal translation. And the first reason is this. The writings are presented matter-of-factly. 
as historical records of real events. That's just the way they're written. To read these things, you wouldn't arrive at a different conclusion. Let's take a look at some of these. Genesis chapter 1. And what we're looking for here is saying, did the author of these give us any hints or clues that they didn't mean for this to be taken literally? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, and then it continues, okay? But that's just very straightforward, isn't it? Matter of fact, this is what happened. This is what God did. Go over to chapter 2. Starting in verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. And we'll come back to this concept. Because in it, he, re he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. This is the what? What does it say? This is the history. Okay, so how is scripture presenting itself here? That's a historical uh, presentation. Okay, let's go over to chapter 7. This is with respect to uh, right before the flood. Chapter 7, verse 7. And by the way, I could read them all, but I just didn't figure we had time to read all the chapters. Okay, chapter 7, verse 7. So Noah, with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood, of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and of everything that creeps on the earth. Two by two they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, we're getting kind of specific here, aren't we? In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were open and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Very matter of fact, isn't it? Just how it's presented. It's not, there's nothing in reading that in and of itself that would cause you to say, I don't think they meant this literally. Okay, one more. Go to chapter uh, 10. All right, so this is a, a genealogy from Noah, chapter 10, verse 1. Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and sons were born to them after the flood. And it goes down to list who all was born from who. It's a record of births. Verse 32, these were the families of the sons of Noah according to their generations and their nations, and from these the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. Very matter of fact, here's these people groups. You can look and find these people groups. Chapter 11, verse 6. This is when the, the human beings have gathered together and now they're working as one and they're, they're being idolatrous. They're setting themselves up really as their own God. In verse 6, it says, And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one. They all have one language. This is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language that there may, they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. 
Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the, all the earth. And you understand that language differences are still probably the greatest thing that separates us in the world. Okay? All right, but all matter of fact. Can you see how that is? The Bible just presents these things as matter of fact. And, and so let's dig a little bit deeper. Maybe there's something in the uh, original languages that would cause us to, to assume that this is spiritual or symbolic somehow. Well, I want to quote a, a guy named James Barr who was a professor of Hebrew at Oxford University. And he, he said, so far as I know, there is no professor of Hebrew or Old Testament at any world-class university who does not believe that the writers of Genesis 1 through 11 intended to convey to their readers the idea is that A, creation took place in a series of six days, which were the same as the days of 24 hours we now experience. Let me just stop just before we go on and say, he isn't saying that he agrees with that. In fact, in these next couple of quotes, we're going to see that they don't necessarily agree with, but he's talking about how the scripture itself is written. Okay? What was the intention of the authors? Go to the next page. And he says that the figures contained in the Genesis genealogies provided by simple addition a chronology from the beginning of the world up to later stages in the biblical story. So he's saying that the author who wrote Genesis intended for this to be understood literally. Okay? All right. Then the guy who followed him at Oxford University named Hugh Williamson says this. He says, so far as the days of Genesis 1 are concerned, I am sure that Professor Barr was correct. I have not met any Hebrew professors who had the slightest doubt about this. Here you go. Unless they were already committed to some alternative by other considerations that do not arise from a straightforward reading of the Hebrew text as it stands. So he's saying that, yeah, there are people who don't agree that that has to be taken literally, but it's not because of the text. It's because of something else. A presupposition, a predetermined conclusion. And then a fellow who, a fellow, huh, a professor who taught at the, uh, in Jerusalem, Hebrew University, says, for the biblical people, this was history. Difficult, that is, is for us to accept this view. Okay? So in the language itself, there is no reason to think it's anything other than literally. Second thing, there is no logical inconsistency in viewing them as literal history. If you sit and read from Genesis 1 through 11, you don't find any contradictory things. If you start off and say, okay, I'm going to uh, read this as those little history and try to understand it, you get through the whole thing. You won't, there was no logical con contradiction as to why you would do otherwise, okay? Third thing, the rest of Scripture treats these events as literal history. So you read through the rest of Scripture, okay? They treat this way. And, and one of the biggest things that, that comes down to us is related to the Sabbath, okay? In the book of Exodus, chapter 20, this is at the end of the Ten Commandments, it says this, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And so he's saying, you're weak, six days, seventh day, rest. Because God, six days, seventh day, rested. You see what I'm saying here? Okay, so the rest of the Bible teaches this way. And then one of the bigger, biggest ones for me is that the one who rose from the dead, the one who predicted his own death and resurrection and actually rose from the dead, he treated these chapters as literal history. Okay? 
Jesus treated these chapters as little literal histories. In Matthew 22, 31, referring to all of the Old Testament, he says, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Jesus refers to 14 different Old Testament books and treats them all as though they are historical. He he deals with a bunch of Old Testament Bible characters. He includes uh, Adam and Eve. He includes uh, Noah. He includes Lot. He includes Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, among all as historical characters. Jesus treats them like they really did what the Bible says they did and what happened. Okay, and those in the book of Genesis and many other places. So let's, let's look at some passages here. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, and just hang in there with me for a little bit here today if you can. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus being challenged about the issue of divorce and what's right and wrong. In chapter, uh, verse number three, he says this, the, or it says this, the Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And, and then he responds to, you know, why does God allow divorce? But the point is, when he is responding to this question, what does he do? He goes back to where? The Genesis story and treats it as a literal story that helps us to understand what it is we're supposed to be doing now. Okay, go over to chapter 24 of Matthew. And verse 36. He's talking about the end of time when prophecy is going to be fulfilled. In verse 36, he says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then, and, well, let's read. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. So what's he do? Talking about the Son of a second coming. He refers, okay, here, remember what happened with Noah. Very matter-of-factly again, right? Treating it as history. Luke chapter 11. And then we'll be done with this part. Luke chapter 11, starting verse 49. It says, Therefore the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. Verse 51, from the blood of Abel. Genesis chapter 4. Okay, you see what I'm saying? This is how Jesus views the Old Testament, and specifically these chapters in Genesis. So, quick review. We start with literal, unless these things... No, back up. Reasons, these are reasons to accept it as literal. 
The writings are presented matter-of-factly as historical accounts of real events. There is no logical inconsistency in viewing them as little history. The rest of scripture treats these events as little history, and Jesus treated them as literal history. Okay? So here's the conclusion about these issues, that our approach to understanding Genesis 1 through 11 should be consistent with the approach that we use for the rest of scripture. You can't uh, look at that different and then look at everything else. No, it, it all comes as one, and it's built on Genesis. Turn to Psalm 119. I want to end with this. Psalm 119, which notably is the longest chapter in the Bible, and it's written about the Word of God and what it is in our lives. Here's where I want to leave you, because once again, if, 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 if you aren't here yet and you're saying, man, I just, that's, wow, that's new to me, you know, or I have questions about that, you know, whether you're here or you're watching or whatever, I get it, man. You have, living, growing up and living in this culture, you have reasons to doubt, okay? But let me encourage you with what we're going to see in this verse, and also that I'd love to connect with you and, and just have a conversation with you about this. Psalm 119. This verse is very, very meaningful to me. Psalm, uh, verse 128. The psalmist says to God, Therefore all your precepts, and, and in this psalm there are all sorts of words used to refer to the word of God. Here it uses the word precepts. Okay, all, It's about what you say about stuff, God. Therefore all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. And I hate every false way. The wrong ways. I don't want the wrong ways. But therefore, all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. And let me tell you that that is always a faith step. Because the reality is, is who knows everything about what the Bible says? Anybody here? Can we do a, take a test and see? We don't. I've been saved for over 40 years now, and, and I still find, oh, wow, yeah, I hadn't realized that, or I saw that differently, or whatever. There's all sorts of things. But many, many years ago, I reached a point where I said, okay, God, I consider all your precepts concerning all things to be right. Even the ones I don't know yet, even the ones maybe I'm not quite understanding right, even the ones I still have questions about. I'm settling it, Lord. What you have said is true and right. With that in mind, two things. Keep pursuing your relationship with Jesus as Lord and Savior. Keep pursuing that. Where, regardless of where, where you're at, with what I've talked about here today, keep pursuing your relationship with the Lord. That may mean it's time for you to receive him as Savior, or it's time for you to get more information. Let us help you make that decision, okay? And this applies to you, by the way, whether you're, you've been saved for a long time and already believe all this stuff, or whether you aren't, and you, it, it just crosses spectrum. Keep pursuing your relationship with Jesus. And the second thing, ask God to help you know the truth, to help you accept the truth, and to live by the truth, whatever that truth may be. The truth, right? That's what we need. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word.
Thank you that you teach us all the things we need to know about how to have a relationship with you. I thank you, Father, that the book of Genesis provides this foundation for so many things. Uh, that the rest of Scripture is built upon even our morality and our views of the world. So I thank you for Genesis, Father. I pray that you'd work in our lives to be able to understand your word and live by your word. I pray that our hearts would uh, be inclined to you, to your son, to living in love. And I pray, Father, you'd help us to understand your word. That we might honor and glorify you with the choices in our lives. And pray, Lord, for anybody who's struggling. I pray, Father, you'd keep drawing them, that they would keep leaning into you, not so much about this issue, but about you. Knowing, Lord, that all that other stuff will find its rightful place when we get in a right place with you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being patient. Uh, went a little long on that. Very important subject, though, and again, I'd love to talk to you if you have questions. Um, any discussion? Good, fair, open discussions are good for us, okay? All right, God bless you.